And the deacon who holds to the faith with a clear conscience, he's not the fellow who lingers at the newsstand where the porno magazines are. And when it's in his face, he chooses to bounce his eyes from it. He doesn't visit the filthy internet sites or those dirty chat rooms or rent the rotten movies that are everywhere in our day. Look, what may be secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we conclude our look at the roles and responsibilities of deacons, part of our ongoing study of the first pastoral epistle from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. As we work our way through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, we pick up in the passage with Paul's admonition that deacons not be addicted to much wine. There's a second century A.D. pastoral manual that has come down to our day, used by pastors in the second century as they celebrated the Lord's table. Unless they be guilty of using strong drink at the Lord's Supper, they mixed it five parts water, one part wine. Now the burden of proof for you to show otherwise would depend upon you. But there's a lot of people who don't want to listen to the facts. But I think this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to Timothy in his first epistle. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy, who found himself traveling quite extensively, as recorded in the Acts, probably was trying to do what John the Baptist did, who never touched a drop of wine in his life. He probably wanted to take a Nazarite vow. In the process, he was getting sick. And Paul says, Timothy, you need to take a little bit of wine too for your frequent ailments. But what I want you to see is that the pure wine and beer were considered strong drink. And God in his wisdom tells you in its raw form, don't use it. Of course, he gives an exception. It's found in Proverbs 31, 6. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. God allowed strong drink, undiluted wine, to be given to a dying man. It's actually a Hebrew parallelism here. One who's dying, that is whose life is bitter. Just like today, we would give morphine as an act of mercy to a dying person. So Paul's point, is that the man who did not heed God's counsel, the man who used strong drink, that is much wine, is not fit to be a deacon. And do you know what? This is the reason so many people get drunk today. The stuff's addictive. Please don't call him an alcoholic. That's the world's term. God calls the man, the woman, a drunkard. Please don't call it a disease. It is not a disease. If it were a disease, you wouldn't be responsible for it anymore than you would morally be responsible for getting cancer. Look, it's not a disease. God calls it drunkenness, and he says that those who live like that have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Only a second birth will change it. Oh, I suppose it's a disease in terms of the effect it may have on your liver and other consequences it may bring to your body. But God doesn't call it a disease. He calls it a sin. And in our day, we would be very unwise to use it. Number one, it has the appearance of evil. 
Look, the liquor industry is a wicked, evil industry. And let me go on record and underline that in your mind that that's what your pastor believes. Front page, Monday, USA Today. Did you see that woman guzzling down her tequila? And the appeal in that whole ad was talking about how college campuses all across America this semester are inviting students to go to Mexico where there are loose drinking laws and to go to Europe and places like Amsterdam where there are no laws at all so you can have just a great time and drink as much as you want to drink. I want to tell you, it is an evil, wicked industry that is promoting immorality. And throughout the Word of God, you'll find wine and immorality kissing. They're linked together. And any wicked man knows that if you want to loosen the morals of another person, just give them liquor. Number one, it has the appearance of evil. Number two, I don't believe it glorifies God in our day. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Paul said, let it be all done to the glory of God. Number three, it can easily cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. And that ought to be reason enough for you to abstain. But I want to tell you, it's not as gray as we make it today. It's strong drink, and it is forbidden in that form. You say, Pastor, I just want to have a little glass of wine with my pastor and my pizza. I know there's been a lot of chatter in recent days because it's gotten back to me. I don't agree with Pastor Brogy and his stance on alcohol. You don't have to agree with me. But I want to tell you, you will wish you'd agreed with me when you meet Jesus Christ at the judgment seat in heaven because you will be ashamed. You will be ashamed of the foolishness of the decision that you made. And don't blame me if you're the kind of Christian who has a little glass of wine at home if your children get in trouble with alcohol. I don't buy the argument that I can model moderation and my children will follow that. That's like saying, well, I'm going to use cocaine in a little moderation. Look, it's strong drink, it's addictive, and the devil knows it. And these parents, most of whom that are meeting, who are dealing with adult children who grew up in their Christian homes who are having problems with liquor or having problems with liquor because their parents supposedly modeled moderation. Look, to use it is to abuse it. And if your children grow up and they have a problem with alcohol, I want to tell you, you may be the root of it. And they may not lick that problem until you get on your face before God and ask Him to forgive you for your wicked support of the alcohol industry in this nation. Listen, if you're a young person, you shouldn't even take a job where you have to serve it. What does Habakkuk 2.15 say? Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. Listen, if you have to work in a restaurant where, where they're serving liquor and that owner can't excuse you from it, I wouldn't work in that restaurant. I would trust God to give you another job. Now look, I'll go to a restaurant where they will serve liquor. I won't drink it. I won't touch a drop of it, but I'll go there because I want to go where the pagans are. I let a man to Christ who was in our first service this morning, 15 feet away from the bar room there over at Applebee's. And he bowed his head as we sat right outside of the bar that day and received Christ as his Lord. Look, you come to my table at lunch this week, and you see a bottle of Budweiser on it. You want to introduce your pagan friend? Oh, this is my pastor. 
Oh, I'm really going to be inclined to witness to him, aren't I? You'd be embarrassed. Look, God doesn't have one standard for me and another for you. And if you want to be the kind of blessable person that God can use, refrain from it. I don't know of a single leader today in the United States that you will hear, at least on the Moody Broadcast Network, that will advocate the use of alcohol. Now, they may get there in different ways, but I want to tell you, I don't know of a single Christian that God is using in any great degree who uses liquor today. Now, look, you can go to some other churches and they'll tell you what they, you want to hear. Some of those pastors will have a glass of wine. Some of them will have a martini with you. And most of those pastors, too, will tell you how, to, they'll go, how you can go straight to hell. They won't use those terms, but that's what they're teaching with their other false doctrine. A deacon is not given to much wine. Well, let's move on. <laughs> a deacon is not to be fond of sordid gain. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Now, this phrase does not mean that a deacon cannot make a lot of money. It's possible to be a good deacon and be very wealthy if you've earned your wealth in a legitimate fashion. The NIV renders it not pursuing dishonest gain. Negatively, it's picturing a person who gains their money illegitimately. They either cheat people by overcharging them or they cheat people by underpaying them. And because some people's hearts are greedy, they're not qualified to serve as a deacon. Not to mention the fact that throughout the centuries, deacons very often have been responsible for the collection of the offering, as they are in this church. And if you have a deacon who is fond of money, he might pilfer the offering. Or sometimes deacons deacons, as in this church, are given money to go and buy certain things for this church. And if they are not men who are trustworthy, they might pilfer the money. Judas was not the last person who betrayed the Lord for a few pieces of silver. Verse 9, he moves from the negative to the positive, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So a deacon is to have a clear conscience. Now, this is a reference to moral purity, to personal purity. It refers to the person who has a close, sensitive walk to the Lord, not only in terms of what he knows, but in terms of what he practices. He speaks here of the mystery of the faith. Mysterion, the Greek word, is used in the Bible to refer to something that was once hidden, but now revealed. And he's speaking here about the faith when it's used in its articular use. The faith is referring to that body of truth, as Jude describes it, that have been delivered once and for all through the apostles. So he's talking about a man who has a commitment to the Bible, who is sound in the faith. But he's a man who not simply knows certain things. He holds to those things in a clear conscience. He's not a man who just intellectually grapples with truth, but a man who's committed to applying the truth. Hey, look, I know men who are callous and insensitive to the word of God. When I was in seminary, we had two seminary professors who had to leave. Because all they did is they, they taught the Bible like a textbook. And sometimes you get Christians who traffic in biblical truth for so long, it's just kind of an academic exercise. They yawn over it. And that kind of person cannot be a good deacon because you have to put into practice that which you profess. And it involves a commitment to moral purity. But when you have a person who's in leadership and he yawns over truth, he's not excited and gripped by the truth. You've got a person who's doing damage to your church. Joseph, he was a beautiful servant. And the Bible 
pictures him as an illustration of the Lord Jesus, who is the supreme servant. Remember Joseph, Potiphar's wife, tried to seduce him. But because what he professed was matched with a clear conscience because he practiced it, he said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? When she tried to force herself upon him, she said, lie with me. And he left his garment in his hand and fled and went outside. You see, who you really are is who you are when nobody else sees you. And Joseph did not contradict with his behavior what he knew to be right. And the deacon who holds to the faith with a clear conscience, he's not the fellow who lingers at the newsstand where the porno magazines are. And when it's in his face, he chooses to bounce his eyes from it. He doesn't visit the filthy internet sites or those dirty chat rooms or rent the rotten movies that are everywhere in our day. Look, what may be secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God sees it. And his eyes look to and fro through the whole earth looking to strongly support the person's heart who is fully his. Next, we learn a deacon is to be tested. Verse 10, and let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Notice first they're to be tested. Then if they are above reproach, they are to serve. You don't choose a man to be a deacon hoping that he'll become a servant. Rather, you choose a man who first has proven himself to be a servant, and then you put him in the office of deacon. Now, the Greek word here for tested, dokimazo, carries the idea of testing for the purpose of approval. Many times when we observe men that we believe potentially could be deacons, we send them a very extensive questionnaire to find out more about them. And sometimes the questionnaire will surface issues that they'll honestly tell us about. For instance, they may not tithe to the church. Look, how can I as a leader ask you to tithe if I don't tithe? How can a deacon serve in a leadership position if he doesn't give a tenth of his income to the Lord's work? Or sometimes you discover his, his family as a whole is not really committed to the body and is not seen in faithful service as a family. And, and so what we do is we dialogue with them and we encourage them to rise to the challenge and we may come back three, four, five years later and dialogue with them again. And the whole purpose for testing him is not to find him guilty, but hopefully to bring him up to the standard that he might be a qualified candidate. And so a deacon is a man who's observed in his local church as a servant. He is first tested. His life is beyond reproach. He has no justifiable accusations against him. He is a proved man. And so because he's proved, he can potentially serve. Next, we learn a deacon is to have a qualified wife. Look at verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, I don't believe he's speaking of a third office, as some would argue. I don't believe that he's speaking of the office of deaconess for at least two reasons. Number one, we saw in Acts 6 during the genesis of the office that God specifically asked only for men to serve in these positions. Secondly, that males are in view are entirely consistent with the immediate context. When he comes to verse 12 and he picks up the qualifications for a deacon again, they're once again distinctively male. Notice. 
notice. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own household. He's still speaking of the same office, not of deaconesses, but of deacons. And if you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be a deaconess. So contextually, verse 11 appears to be addressing the deacon's wife. Now it is true that the Greek word gunikos, translated here in the NAS, women, can be translated either women or wives. And the New American Standard very conservatively just puts women and they leave the interpretive matter for the reader in the context. But I think the King James is entirely correct in rendering this verse in the same way their wives, that is the deacon's wives, that's what he's talking about, are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Or in the same way the NIV renders it, even so their wives must be grave, not slanderous, sober, sober faithful in all things. And you might expect him to address a deacon's wife because a deacon is often forced into certain ministries with his wife. He goes, say, to help a widow in her home. He's very foolish if his wife's not with him. When he finds himself helping a family, many times his wife has to be involved with him. And sooner or later, she will become privy of information that is often confidential in the ministry of that family. And if she, for instance, is a gossip, if she has a loose tongue, it will mean disaster for the people they care for and for the local church. And so the same dignity of the deacon is demanded of the deacon's wife. She can't be a malicious gossip. She can't be a slander. Look, that's the devil's job not hers. She has to be temperate. That is, she can't be given to extremes up and down. And she has to be faithful in all things. She can't have a casual attitude towards the church of God, to serving God's people, God's women, and so forth. Look, many a good man are disqualified by their wives. Notice in verse 12 next, a deacon is to be the husband of one wife. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife. Again, the Greek text literally reads, as we saw in our study and exposition of this with elders, a one woman man. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but let me just briefly hit upon a few of the high points when we discussed it concerning the qualification of an elder. We saw that there are basically three or four basic ways in which this text, a one woman man, the husband of one wife has been understood. Roman Catholics use it to defend their doctrine of celibacy. You know, to be a priest, you can't get married in the Roman Catholic Church. And they would appeal to this passage, the husband of one wife. Well, who's he married to? The church. The church to whom he has given himself to for life. Well, who are the children in the passage? Ah, his spiritual children who are in his parish. You see the problem with that? You have to spiritualize the text. Unless it's given as a metaphor, specifically in the context. You have no right to violate the basic rules of Greek grammar. You can't spiritualize a text. If you do that, you can make the Bible mean just about anything you want it to mean. Still, others understand the husband of one wife to be a requirement for the deacon to be a married person as, say, an elder. Certainly, I think you would expect, though, Paul, to address a deacon and consider him, for the most part, to be married. Why? Because the norm, according to the book of Genesis, is for most men in this life to get married. 
Now, we shouldn't try to marry people that God has called to be single because God has called some people to be single for life or they're single again and he's called them to be celibate the rest of their life. Nothing wrong with that. And you shouldn't interfere in meddle. But most people in this life, God is called to be married. But to say that this is an exclusion from people who are single serving in the elder office of deacon, I think it's to miss the spirit of the New Testament. Paul himself was an elder. Like Peter, he could have called himself a fellow elder. And yet an elder had to be also the husband of one wife. And yet Paul was never married. So it would exclude Paul from being an elder when he was an elder. And for that matter, it would exclude the chief overseer, the chief servant of the church, the perfect servant and elder, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he too was single. Still, others take the phrase the husband of one wife as a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy. And so they understand that what Paul is saying is, if you want to be considered as an elder or a deacon, you have to have just one wife at a time. That is totally ridiculous in my understanding of the Bible. Number one, bigamy and polygamy, much like in our Western culture today, is against the law and was against the law in the Roman first century culture. Number two, if you looked across the congregation and said, well, that guy's got two wives. We can't consider it. Well, he's got four. Oh, he's got six. He's got two. Look, those people wouldn't be members under the new covenant. Those people would be qualified for church discipline, not church membership, much less the office of elder or deacon. Now, historically, from the church fathers on until just about the middle of the 20th century, the unanimous voice of the church is that the husband of one wife referred to someone who has been married only once. Some broaden this view to include those, say, who've been widowed. And so they would say, look, if you were married and your wife died and you married again, you could no longer be simply the husband of one wife, and so they would exclude widowers who have been remarried from serving in the office of elder or pastor. Some take a less restrictive view, and they say, well, he means not that, but probably those who have never been divorced. The husband of one wife refers to someone who's not on their second marriage. And I think in the culture in which Paul was writing, that's primarily what he had in view. Again, please understand, God's not down on divorced people. He doesn't have a big scarlet D written on your back if you've been divorced. If you've dealt with your divorce before the Lord, what God has called clean, let no man call unclean. 60% plus the people in this fellowship are on their second marriage. But look, as a pastor, if I'm on my second or third marriage and I'm up here week after week telling you how to be successful with your family, I have no credibility. I don't have anything really to say to you with authority because I haven't lived it. And what God is doing when he comes to modeling the office of elder or deacon is he's putting before his church the ideal because he wants to keep his church salty. And those of you who have suffered the pain of, of divorce and you've walked down that road, if you could keep the next generation from making the same mistake, you'd do everything that you could. God hates divorce and he wants to preserve marriage, just like with capital punishment. God hates the, the, the uh, unfaithful taking of another person's life. He hates premeditated murder. 
Now, I know we've got some faults in our system in this country, but I want to say, if the evidence is beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was premeditated murder with at least two witnesses, as the Bible specifies, then God has put in line what we call capital punishment. Not because God's down on life, but because he's up on life. It becomes a deterrent to someone needlessly taking another person's life. Even so, when you model the ideal, it puts some salt back into the body of Christ, and it puts some preservative in there to protect marriages, to help the next generation not make the same mistake. Finally, a deacon is to be a good manager of his home. Look at it. And good managers of their children and their own households. In other words, if he can't function successfully in a limited realm, don't enlarge it. If he can't function in his family, don't put him in a position in the family of God. If his Christianity doesn't work in his home, don't export it into the church. If he can't raise godly kids in his home, don't let him try to take a position of leadership to do that in the church. And so Paul briefly concludes with the compensation from the office. Let me just note two in closing. First, he will gain deep respect. The compensation that a deacon receives, among other things, is he will gain deep respect. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing. There is true respect for the true servant of God. The assembly of God's people will love you. You will obtain for yourself a high standing. And while it is true that a deacon who is a model can obtain this, it is also true of any man or woman who serves. You know, there are some people in this church I deeply respect because they are not afraid to get involved. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not afraid to get involved in the nuts and bolts of serving the people of God. A deacon knows that. And secondly, he will have great confidence. He tells us that the faithful deacon will obtain for himself great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's just a personal assurance that you are doing what pleases God, that God is using you. Look, God wants servants, whether you ever serve in the office or not. And of course, we have a model for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And thank God for the supreme act of servanthood of our Savior that we might be forgiven and be able to serve the living God. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for this time in the Word of God. And I pray, our Lord, for someone that's here that cannot serve you as you would desire for them to serve you because they've never been born from above. And they do not have the assurance that if they were to die, that they would go to heaven. Father, only you can open their eyes to understand. I pray you'd help them to see that they are bankrupt and vile in your sight, but very, very much loved. And that forgiveness is available if they will call upon the name of Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord. Help, dear Father, someone to do that today. Help others who need to make commitments of rededication to these qualities that you've called your people to. 
Help them to make those decisions today. Thank you that you deal with us in grace, that you meet us where we are. We thank you and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope the study on deacons and our previous study on elders from 1 Timothy chapter 3 has been a help to you, particularly if you're in the position of picking candidates to fill these positions in your church or if you aspire to one of these positions. You might want to consider getting a copy of these messages for your church's pastor and ruling authorities. If so, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program 1TM8, the Office of Deacon, or 1TM7, the Office of Elder. You can also listen to these online at our website, searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we begin a look at effective ministry in the last days. Join us then as we search the scriptures.